Good morning. I know that some of you know that I went to uh, Southeast Asia last year. And my second stop was in Southeast Sulawesi. And I went to visit Kevin and Leilani Humble, our missionaries there, and spent about a week with them. And I, got to, I have to say, it was a very unique experience, a very eye-opening experience, and quite an adventure. And if you want to talk to me later about the adventure part, I'll be happy to talk to you. But uh, I, they have such a unique situation where they are because it's 99% Muslim. And you'll have to tell you exactly how they managed to do mis missionary work in that kind of situation. So I'd like to introduce Kevin and Leilani Humble. And thank you ever so much for your gracious hospitality. <laughs> Grab her mic. Good morning. It is such a privilege to be here in these kind of times, right? Um, in 2020 and 2021. And we want to thank you all. Um, you have been a part of the ministry you have um, given sacrificially, and also um, some of you have prayed, some of you have known us, some of you haven't known us, but um, for many years now, we've been in Indonesia almost going on 30 years now. So um, we, we have seen God do so many things. We, he has brought us through um, all kinds of just craziness in Indonesia. And the last, I think, eight years, we've been in Southeast Sulawesi, and um, we loved having Vicki with us. It meant so much to us that she would come out at her age and, um, and, and go around the islands with us. And the people were amazed to see, they'd say, how old is she? She still has her teeth, my goodness. <laughs> but um, that meant so much because a part of you came to where we lived and that, that meant so much to us. Um, I just thank God, it's only because of God's grace only because of God's grace that we're still there, believe me. And so I just praise the Lord uh, for you, for sending Vicki, and for sustaining us all these years in Indonesia. Amen. Uh, some of you may know us and some of you may not, and that's actually not really that important. Uh, but what Leilani was saying is that the partnership is real, right? And we were sent out by you, and many of you have supported us and prayed for us, and God is at work around the world. And uh, so we're here to look at the Word and to share with you a little bit about what God is doing uh, and what we have found to be the most unreached, unengaged part of the world. Uh, it's actually why we moved to Southeast Sulawesi. We just you know, looked at all the statistics and we said, where are the nations? And I'm using nations in the idea of ethne, right? Um, so you can have a lot of nations in one country, you know, kind of like the Hopi nation, right? A different language, a different people group. So where, where is the province with the most unreached and even unengaged nations? Uh, so an unengaged nation would be a nation that's never had a missionary. And, you know, the Bible hasn't been translated. The, the Jesus film hasn't been translated. There's no church and in some cases no believers, zero from their people group. And that's where God led us. Um, and I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about that. But this morning, I really, just in light of what's going on and the pandemic and, you know, cancel culture and <laughs> I don't agree with you, so I'm just going to cancel you. Um, you know, just all the difficulties that we're facing today. 
I'd like us to look at Scripture and this idea of uh, problems as opportunities. Now, how does that work out? You know, how does God use problems as opportunities? Opportunities for his glory, uh, opportunities in our life uh, in terms of shaping us and perfecting us to be more like Jesus. You know, how does that all work? My own life uh, was greatly uh, impacted by missionaries, actually. Um, my grandparents went out um, to China, and uh, I just I remember the stories, you know, of uh, World War II starting and Grandpa, you know, building a bomb shelter, kind of like underground thing in his backyard, and then the village all running there when the Japanese came to uh, came to bomb. Uh, you know, then they went back to China, and communism came, and they fled again, and many of their colleagues were were captured and put into concentration camps and, and died, died there. But the testimonies and the stories. Um, my own dad actually went out to the Dayak people. And the Dayak people at that time were an unreached people group. They were headhunters. And uh, they were tribal people. They didn't really, and, and those years really have the picture of Islam. Uh, today we understand that most of the unreached and unengaged people groups in the world are under Islam. Uh, you know, basically, it's, it's uh, a religion that deceives millions and, and, and even billions of people over time, right? Um, so he went to this tribal area, very primitive. Uh, yeah, I, I, I did have some pictures, but honestly, I just feel like I follow the Spirit's leading better if I don't use PowerPoint. So that's what we're going to do this morning. Pictures can help, but you're just going to have to listen to the Word and listen to the Spirit, right? Um, so we went in a very primitive place, you know, kind of a grass thatch kind of house kind of situation. And um, the early years were really rough. Um, in 1965, there was a communist coup that was overthrown, um, and basically it's listed as one of the biggest genocides in the world. When the list was flipped and communism was overthrown, they just took the list where you, you know, bump everybody off, and they reversed it, which really wasn't that great, but was very effective. Um, so they had even infiltrated into our school. We had um, a mission area where we had a hospital and a church and a school and they had our our school children actually dig our graves um, because the communists had infiltrated that far into the system and then when they overthrew that they reversed the list right so they had a list where they were going to bump off everybody that was educated and had influence and power and then they just took that list and reversed it well in 1967 the conflict was more real in our particular area. So we were in Borneo, West Borneo. And apparently, according to the government, that the Chinese were feeding the communists in the jungle. And so they put out a decree that the Dayaks, who were former headhunters, were to chase the Chinese out of the interior. And uh, they went after them. I mean, they went back to their old headhunting ways. And uh, yeah, it's very, very pagan in, in that sense. Uh, and so Chinese were fleeing from the interior actually to our place. And from our place, uh, Dad would rent it as many or, or just con contracted as many old buses as he could. All they had was these uh, wooden buses built on a, on a Chevy or a Ford chassis, right? <laughs> and, and he was shipping them into town as, as quickly as he could. 
So here we are in the middle of this conflict. It's actually a Dayak Chinese war, but not really a war because the Chinese are losing badly. <laughs> and and uh, just to be in that. Now, Dad was gone most of the time. And he was off talking to the government and the army, trying to get this thing stopped. And we were really there to reach the Dayaks, but in this crisis, we were trying to help the Chinese because they were being slaughtered, women, children. Um, and it was very impactful in my life. I was only five years old. But I remember the morning we sat down for breakfast and a Dayak man came in and he had a freshly cut head. And he was bragging about it, you know. And you see those kind of things and you just don't, sort of forget it. I remember when my sister, my older sister and I were standing in the bedroom window and we were watching as the, as the marketplace down the road was attacked and women and children were running to our station because at that time the Dayak still hadn't attacked our place. You kind of have to wonder, you know, what on earth were my parents thinking, right? I mean, why did they stay, right? I mean, in light of the things that we look at today, it's like, seriously, you're going to stay in a dangerous place? I mean, what, you know, what's with that? I, I remember my mom sleeping with a, with a machete under her bed, you know? And my mother was just not a, I mean, she's just a very mild, you know, personality, big smile. You know, what on earth is she sleeping with a machete under her bed? You know, you, you start to th you think about these things even when you're, when you're little. Um, one of the things that dad had done during that time is he, he hired um, or asked a Chinese evangelist to come, uh, someone who spoke uh, actually the language. The Chinese language wasn't Mandarin there. It was Ke, Ke and uh, Hokkien. Yeah, probably too much detail for you. But, but uh, he could speak the, the local Chinese dialect. And we were seeing around 300 uh, Chinese make decisions to follow Jesus every night. Um, they were sleeping in the hospital and in the church and in the school. And, and you know, he, God used that, that terrible time, really, um, for his glory and to bring people to himself, right? Uh, today, actually, uh, the Chinese in Indonesia, they, they are the greatest percentage of Christians of anywhere in the world. Isn't that amazing? It's over 30% believers. I mean, we're talking evangelical Chinese, Indonesian believers, right? Well, the night finally came where we had to flee in the middle of the night. And uh, someone came, picked us up in a Jeep. The roads were bad. And we fled in the middle of the night. And I, I, we got to town. You were safe in the city. And I remember, it was probably, I don't know what time it was, probably about two or three in the morning. And I called my mom, you know, which if you're a mom, that's a great thing for your kid to do, right? You just fled a crisis. And I was like, mom! You know, <laughs> oh man. So she wasn't real happy when she showed up. But it was like, it was at that moment that I understood. Because mom had explained to me, she said, you know, you see all this death. And she said, you know, if you confess your sins and you receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior, it's as if he, you know, he places you in his hand. And uh, it's just a good illustration, not just for kids, but anybody, right? And nobody can hurt you. And if he opens his hand, then you're going to go to be with him. And, and the rest of your family that, that believe in him. And that sounded like a really good idea to me. And it was that night, you know, in the middle of this fleeing, that I called my mom into, the, into my room and wanted to trust in Jesus and confess my sins. Um, problems, right? Problems is opportunities. The Bible's full of these stories. Have you ever thought of it from that perspective? 
You know, you, you look at Abraham, and Abraham, he's being asked to leave his homeland. Must have felt very safe there. You know, and he has to leave. And then he's told that, that he's going to, that from his descendants, he's going to be a blessing to all the nations. You know, descendants like the sand on the sea and the stars in the sky. But he has no children. It's a big problem, isn't it? Tries to figure it out, you know, uses the handmade servant. <laughs> that wasn't God's plan. <laughs> you know, he's trying to do it in his own thinking, you know. Finally, he has a kid, right? Here it is. And God says, I want you to give him up to me. Right? I mean, just, just put yourself in his, you know, in his place. You know? He's walking up the mountain with his, with his only son, right, from his wife. And, uh, and the son's wondering what's going on. Where's the sacrifice? And Abraham, you know, the faith, he says, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. When we study this story with Muslims, they, they don't sit there and debate about Isaac and Ishmael. They are blown away by Abraham's faith. They can't stop talking about this man who believed God above all the circumstances, all the problems, right? It's just this incredible faith. And you look at that in Hebrews, and it talks about how their acts of faith, really, they had to be actions, right? Actions that they took based on their faith, were attributed to them as righteousness. And we, we get confused about, you know, grace and salvation and works, and we understand that works don't save, but sometimes we separate them too far. Because faith has action, right? And those actions were attributed to them as righteousness, right? Because it wasn't dead faith, it was living faith that, that believed God in the face of problems, in the face of difficulties. And God used that to perfect them and to bring glory uh, to himself. Well, the story is just full, right? Of these kind of, the Bible is full of these kind of stories. Um, even down to Jesus, you know, over and over again, using problems. You know, he meets with the woman at the well. Well, she had five too many problems, right? Yeah. And, you know, he's talking about the living water, and she wants that, but she still has a problem. She's like, well, you know, your people, they worship in Jerusalem, and my people, they pray on the mountaintop. And, you know, it's kind of like, is this really going to work? You know? And Jesus says, no, the time has come where, you know, it's not about the temple anymore, and it's not about the mountaintop. It's about worshiping in spirit and truth. And she runs, and she goes, and she tells her people in the village. And then in, in John 4, 42... Um, you, you hear the villagers talking to the woman and, and they said to the woman for we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the savior of the world Jesus incarnate comes into their village and this is actually part of what we try to do in Sulawesi we might get a chance to explain that a little bit later um, but this, one of my favorite stories I just we want to use this as our main passage in Esther Okay, Esther chapter 4. If you want to turn there, I'm just going to pull some of the verses out, hoping that you got the context there. Uh, I'll give you a little bit of a context. One of the reasons this is my, one of my favorite stories and light of problems is because Esther is such an unlikely hero of the faith, isn't she? I mean, basically, Esther's a trophy wife. You all know what a trophy wife is, right? It still goes on today, right? I, I, uh, when we come back on home assignment, there, there's a partner church in Huntington Beach that has a mission house. And uh, we stay there. Now, Huntington Beach is not an area that we would 
afford otherwise, except that they have a mission house there, right? Um, so Huntington Beach is a place where there's quite a few trophy wives, right? It's just, that's the way it is. And uh, so really, this is, this is Esther's role, right? She, the, the, the former queen wasn't willing to dance for the guests, right? And, and the, the, the king's very upset, yeah? and he needs a new wife, right? And she's chosen for what? For, for her looks, for her beauty, for her ability to dance, I suppose, right? I mean, they go under all these incredible beauty care and all this kind of stuff. It's just so cool that God uses her, right? I mean, it's just, I just love it when the, the, the unexpected happens, right? Because of faith in God. I mean, she's under this tutelage of her, of her uncle, of Mordecai. And Mordecai really is, is discipling her and coaching her. And, and, and she's there, and her, her purpose and her mission is to live out and glorify God, right? And so there, there's this plot where the, the, the Israelites are going to be exterminated, right? And so Mordecai gets a hold of her eunuch, and she, he has the, the plans that, you know, for the extinction of, the, of the, the tribe of Israel. And so in verse 8, Mordecai gives it to the eunuch. It says, Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction. That's the destruction of the Jews, right? That he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. Okay? This is Esther's response in verse 11. All the king's servants, and she says, all the king's servants and the people of the king, king's province know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death. So, I mean, just thinking of this in light of our own context, what is Esther being asked to do? Yeah, sacrifice, break the law, right? She's really being asked to break the law. And, and, and it's on behalf of her people. I mean, it's for a good cause. Um, there is one exception at the verse, end of verse 11. Uh, the one whom the king holds out the golden scepter will live. Okay, so that's it. Basically, you go into the inner court without being called. You've broken the law. And if the king extends you his scepter, <laughs> then you're not going to die. Right? So this is what Esther answers. And then in verse 13, this is Mordecai's advice. Now think of this in light of problems, in light of life today, in light of our own life. It is incredible advice. Incredible advice. I mean, it was just like, I mean, it's applicable today, right? So here's how Mordecai answers. He says, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. Okay, so what is, what is the first thing he says? First of all, he's saying, don't think you're safe. What, why do you have this misconception that you think you're safe? What, what, you know, you're not safe. Just because you're in the king's palace does not make you safe, right? That's really good advice. I mean, a lot of what we hear today is based on the fact that we believe we're safe, right? So stay safe. Well, yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? 
And then in 14, he says, For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. So if you don't choose to act, God's going to use somebody else. Right? You're going to miss out. I mean, this, this is really good, isn't it? I mean, just to, just to let God speak to us through his word here. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. So that's the third piece of advice, right? Who knows, but that this isn't your moment, right? That, that God hasn't placed you here just for this time, just to do this particular act. And then Esther answers, and it's a wonderful answer in verse 16. She says, go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf. And do not eat or drink for three days, nights, three nights or days. I and my young woman will also fast and as you do, okay? So she's not just going to go in there. She, she's going she's gonna to pray and she's going to fast. And if you read the rest of the story, she has a brilliant strategy, doesn't it? Wines and dines them. And yeah, it's just, it's just wonderful. Then I will go to the king. Though it is against the law, okay, there it's emphasized again, though it's against the law, and if I perish, I perish. We have a word in Indonesian, it's called pasra. There's not really a good word in English, but it's just the idea of being surrendered into God's hands, you know? And what happens to me is what happens to me. I'm going to do the will of the Lord. I mean, I, you know, this is, this is something that's bigger than me. I, I am not in control. <laughs> I'm, I'm in the hands of the Lord, right? And, and that's her response. Um, I, I, I love this. Um, you all sent us out uh, to the mission field sometime a while back now. We were appointed in 1992, so that's almost 30 years ago, isn't it? And when we first went, um, you know, you got... You got Hurdles to overcome. You got to learn the language. Uh, even though I was born in Indonesia, I, I, I uh, played a lot with the Dayak children. They didn't have very good Indonesian as far as the trade language, and so I had to improve my Indonesian. Like Leilani learned from zero, so fortunately she's better at language than I am. Um, so you you learn the language, and we worked with this seminary. It was a good seminary. Um, every every graduate. Before they could graduate, every student before they could graduate had to plant a church. They had to lead to the Lord and baptize 15 individuals in order to graduate. It was pretty amazing. Started by an Indonesian, so they were putting together the the, the theological, you know, grounding with with action, with actually going out and doing it. Right, planting a church. Well, um, in the beginning, the work, you know, God blessed it. Uh, we were seeing three, four hundred baptisms every year uh, out of Islam. Uh, but one of the things we began to realize is that people from unreached people groups weren't getting saved. And what would happen is, you know, you'd start a church like in the city and people that were from the more reached people groups would come and they'd come to know Jesus, even out of Islam. But if there was a resistant, uh, radical, sort of unreached people group, if anyone ever came to Jesus, they would be 
sort of, it was like evangelism extraction, right? Win the one and lose the 99. So they'd have to come to the above ground church in the, in the, in the trade language, right? And they would lose everything. They would lose their spouse and their children and their, their property. And, 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 you know, it's an incredible testimony. Uh, a lot of times those people would end up going back. But if they didn't, you know, you take them around and they share their testimony and all that they went through to follow Jesus. And it's incredible uh, testimony. But the problem was there wasn't any movement that came out of that. So God's kingdom didn't come to that nation. That the church or the word wasn't established in that nation so that God, so that Jesus Christ could build his church and the church could multiply. And so we didn't see movement. And if, if, you, if your heart is to continue to press out to the nations that haven't heard or haven't had an opportunity here, a missionary kind of perspective, it's not, it's not an issue of importance, okay? Like uh, people from an unreached people group aren't, any more important than the people here, all right? I mean, sometimes people misunderstand that. It's like, well, why are we saying they're more? No, they're not more important. But it's a strategic priority, right? Because if we keep going to the nations that haven't heard, there's no believers, there's no church, then when this gospel is preached to all the nations, ethne there again, then the end shall come. Then Jesus is coming again. So that's why we prioritize it, right? And we were seeing that by establishing traditional above-ground churches in the city, we weren't reaching the unreached people groups. That was a problem, right? Faced problems. So it actually put me a bit into a crisis. And kind of thinking through that, I thought, man, I went over to Indonesia, and I want to see, you know, the nations reached, and we're not being effective. You know, it's kind of like Einstein. You just... That's his definition of insanity, right? Keep doing the same thing over and over again, hoping for different results. It's kind of like, why do we keep doing this? You know, how do we go to them? How do we do what Jesus did, you know? Went into the village, right? And, 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 and then he was there incarnate, the word of God, right? So now what we use, actually, uh, I'm, I'll get ahead, and that'll get, I'm sorry, that'll, I'll get too far ahead of myself. Okay, so... But we do use uh, ecotourism or cultural tourism now to get into homes, right? And, and you guys can be part of that, actually, as, as our guests, uh, cultural guests or eco-guests. Uh, help us, actually, to get into Muslim homes where we can share God's word uh, and where we can see life and community transformation. Really, God's kingdom come, right? His, his church, Jesus built his church. So you have to go to them and you have to be in their homes. Uh, so we hadn't learned all these things. Uh, but we saw there were some movements that were taking place in some of the most resistant parts of the world, including Indonesia and the Middle East and northern Africa and northern India, that God was, was working and there were movements taking place that we'd never seen before in history. The first 1,300 years of Islam, there are zero movements that would be more than, say, 100 church plants or 1,000 baptisms of Muslims coming out of Islam to Jesus. Zero. And in that same period of time, there's literally millions of Christians becoming Muslims, right? And, and something is going on today in our generation that we have, well, actually, the generation below me, right? Because I'm a little old now. But anyways, God is doing something uh, today that we've never seen before. And we started learning from those principles. And uh, actually, uh, one of those principles is 
to find a person of peace, to find somebody that, that God is calling to himself. And then when God is calling that person, instead of just you know, telling him to go to church and get saved, telling him to gather his household together and his neighbors together. And what he or she learns with you and God's word, he's going to help his people, his nation, discover and apply those same truths. And so my neighbor actually kept our horse. And uh, it was my daughter's horse. Uh, Grandpa is uh, actually a former like cowboy from Arizona, right? And so he wanted his daughter to have a horse, right? So she, he kept our horse, and he used it to work, actually, to pull the cart as kind of like a carriage, a taxi kind of thing. So that was his livelihood. So he took care of the horse. Room and board was covered for the horse, and Brianna could ride that horse on Saturday morning uh, because he didn't use it to work on Saturday morning. And uh, so we had a good relationship. Well, he, his wife comes down with cancer, Actually, when I had had uh, about a melanoma in the States, so there was some parallels that God worked there. And, uh, and so he's, he's in the hospital with his wife, and some believers came and prayed for him. And that night, he has a vision, and he sees a bright light, and he hears a whisper in his ear that his wife's going to be healed. So when I came back from home assignment, he seeks me out. He's like, what, what was that all about? He knows I'm a follower of Jesus, and he's like, what happened, you know, and he's looking for interpretation. Well, I don't know about the gift of interpretation of dreams, right, but, uh, but I could figure that one out, right? There was another man in Scripture that saw a bright light. God was calling him. God's calling you, right? So, you know, what you study, but here was a big shift. I mean, it seems subtle, but it's, it was huge. Instead of just saying, you know, what? Four spiritual laws on the spot, you know, get saved, or go to church and get saved. I said, you know, God's calling you. And 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 if you study God's word, they know, they know, you know, Taurat, Zabur, Injil, you know. Uh, the, the what's that in English? That was sorry, that was Arabic. Torah. Yeah, Torah, thank you. <laughs> thank you. All right. Jim's gonna kick me out for being a heretic. Um, no. Uh, so um, I said, you study that. And, and you're going to discover forgiveness of sins, eternal life. You know, God's going to call you to follow him. You're going to become a follower of Jesus. But God doesn't want to save you apart from your family. And that was huge. They get that. You know, they, they know the prophets. God didn't save Adam without his family. God didn't save Noah without his family. God didn't save Abraham without his family. You got 30 stories of conversion and, conversions and acts, and all but three are that person, right? Like Cornelius or Lydia or just, well, over, you know, 30 stories of people coming to Jesus and acts, and all but three are that person and their whole household coming to Christ. And in those situations, it likely meant, you know, some of their neighbors and, and their household servants, and, you know, just everybody coming to Jesus, right, through the person that God was calling. So I said, what you discover in God's word with me, you're going to help your family and your neighbors discover. And in a year's time, through that, because Marioso has the contacts. His wife is from another unreached people group. And, and through that experience, because of their life transformation, right, that's what becomes the salt and light, that we saw over 40, uh, around 40 house churches planted. Three different times evangelism. And it was the first time that we actually saw a movement of God, right, acts taking place that moved into unreached people groups. It wasn't this extraction kind of an idea. So... Problems, really, was how God led us in that, right? Realizing that we just weren't being effective. And then we said, okay, if God can do that here, 
what if he does that, could do that somewhere else? Like, where's the darkest place we can find, right? Where's the gospel never been? Let's go there and see if God can't do the same thing, because we believe he can, right? So that's how he ended up in southeast Sulawesi. Well, you go there, and there's lots of problems. Just ask Vicky, right? There were lots of challenges, right? A lot of challenges. You know, it's basically 100% Muslim area. I mean, there's a few Christians in the city from other people groups, but the indigenous people, some of them, no believers. So how do you get in even? You know, you, you, you can't get a missionary visa, right? Um, about the only visa we could get was a business visa. That was it. Business visa? <laughs> We're missionaries. Well, we thought about it. We prayed. You know, you seek the Lord. You've got these problems. How do you get in? And he led us, the Lord led us to this ecotourism or cultural tourism business, right? So we have teams come from churches, from Christian universities, and we just say, come and experience authentic Sulawesi, right? It's big for millennials, right? Come, I mean, we can take you to a village where foreigners have never been, kind of an idea, right? And it's come and experience that. But then we say, you know, live out loud your love and passion for God. Now pray for people. Tell Bible stories. Share your own testimony. And when we find those people that are spiritually open, guess what we're going to do? We're going to say, gather your family and your neighbors together and what you learn in God's word with us, you're going to help them learn, right? And that's where we begin to see God transform their lives and their communities, right? Isn't that cool? I mean, you know, it's clearly God's, clearly God's leading. Well, we got there, and we, we were in the city, and it was hard, and they, we weren't living among an unreached people group. We wanted to actually live among an unreached people group. We didn't have a place. We're in a, in a house, hot house, tin roof. I mean, it was, yeah, you just sweated all day and night. I mean, you'd sweat through your mattress at night. It was terrible. Um, so I, one morning I woke up, and I thought, you know, we have not because we asked not. I mean, let's... Let's pray and let's fast. And so I said that to the team. And, uh, and so we prayed and we fasted. The next morning I woke up and it was like, go ask Habib. Well, Habib was an influential imam. Uh, well, actually not an imam, a hajj. He'd been to, to Mecca, right? Uh, but he had, he had all kinds of contacts. So we went and he said, well, I got this piece of property. You know, 138 coconut trees on it. You know, it was, it was actually not that pretty when we first got it, but it was right on the water. Uh, needed a lot of work. Uh, but one family wouldn't sell, you know, very, very cheap, actually. Uh, so we prayed and fasted some more, and pretty soon that family got in trouble and was forced, actually, by the rest of the village to sell to us, you know? And then we had a place, right? But then, you know, how do you put up little villas and have guests and that kind of thing? Well, you know, the faucet opened, and the funds came in, and, and as soon as we were done, the faucet turned off, right? And it's just the way God works, um, we moved out there, and the, fa- the Indonesian family that we were living with, they didn't want to live among an unreached people group. So Leilani and I moved out there all by ourselves. It was a little scary, honestly. I'm, I'm, I like to think of myself as not very declined to fear, but I was pretty fearful moving out there. And uh, we had no workers. It's like, well, how, we don't have a team. We have to have other Indonesian partners. I mean, who's, who's going to help us with the follow-up and the discipleship and all these things, right? And so, again, you know, pray to the Lord of the harvest. Pray for workers. I mean, that's a command in the Bible, right? So we prayed. And uh, I said to Leilani, because we'd been doing trainings around the country. And, uh, and I said, well, why don't we just call some of the people that took our training? 
some of the ones that God used during the training time. Because during the training time, some of them had started. We called the, used a method called Discovery Bible Study, and some of them had actually started Discovery Bible Studies with Muslims. And we said, call those people and see if they'll come. And sure enough, two young girls came, you know, in their 20s. And now we're working with over 100. Yeah. Yeah, isn't that amazing? I mean, and, and you know, that builds our faith because it's like, okay, if there's if God says there's a harvest and we pray for more workers for the harvest and then he sends workers, that means he wants a harvest, right? I mean, it's just, it's a faith builder because it's like God wouldn't be sending all these people if he didn't want to work out, a, work a harvest here, right? Then, then we developed a, what we call a missional community where, you know, we encourage one another. I mean, just witnessing the Muslims every day is just hard work, right? Going out among the lost, um, you get discouraged, how do you keep doing that? Well, you need brothers and sisters in Christ that are doing the same thing, right? That are praying and encouraging each other. So we formed like a missional community. But we call it a hub because it's not focused inward, right? We're, we're, we're praying and encouraging each other to go out, kind of like an airport hub, right? You come in, you refuel, and you go, right? And you plant the gospel in their household, in their oikos uh, out there. And so now we're sending... Workers will come and they'll be trained, American or Indonesian, and then we'll send them to other provinces and other unreached and unengaged people groups because they've had the experience, they've had the, they've had the practice with us. Well, we haven't yet seen movement in this, in this province, um, but we've seen the first fruits, and that's exciting. Um, when we moved there, the Bajo people, they're sea gypsies. We went to a Bajo village, right? Wasn't that great? That was awesome. <laughs> they're sea gypsies. They, they build their house out over the water. You know, I'm, I've even stayed in one. Actually, it was a Manui village. They're similar to the Bajo. Um, the whole village was built, built on an atoll. You know what an atoll is? It's where a volcano bubbles up, and then there's a hole in the middle, and it's just like this incredible reef um, a couple of miles across. I mean, the, the diving is spectacular, okay? Both Leila and I are dive instructors in case anybody, you know, have, wants to have a fun day at the end and go diving. Okay, I'm just trying to sell it here. Um, yeah, okay. Uh, anyways, I'm losing my train of thought. Um, so the Manui people were there. Well, we knew of no, no um, Manui believers, and we went there actually with our family. Our kids were with us at the time. And uh, we found our first Manui man who had been asking about what was in the New Testament all his life. And the imams wouldn't tell him. And one of our Indonesian workers handed him, you know, some of the passages out of the New Testament. He spent the whole day reading that. And he said he came to eat supper with us because we were staying in another family's home. And he said, I've been looking for this all my life. And, and he was so ready, we, we, we baptized him the next day, you know. Well, the Bajo people, when we, when we went there, there were no known Bajo believers. And today there's probably around 20. I don't want to say there's... Some of them have fallen away, but some of them are continuing to be discipled, okay? So, not multiplication yet. I mean, we want to see multiplication of disciples and churches, so keep praying with us. But man, when you see those very first people come to Jesus out of that nation, it is, it is so exciting, you know? I haven't done it yet, but it always makes me want to walk on water. You know, it's just, it's just, yeah, I know. I, I'd probably sink just like Peter. But anyways, it would, it would be cool even for a moment, wouldn't it? Um, it it's so exciting to see those first, first people come, uh, come to Jesus. 
well, all these problems or opportunities, um, the, the access was going well. We called it the business really an access because that's all it is. It gets us in, right? And when you think about this kind of experience, it's really neat. I mean, if you come, you're going to have a total immersion experience, just like Jesus. I mean, usually if you go on a mission trip, you know, a lot of times it's a work project, nothing against work projects, but, you know, they're work projects, right? Uh, if you ever go on a mission trip, if you're going to stay with the local people, it's usually believers, right? That's fine. But imagine going to a completely unreached, unengaged area, staying with Muslim families. I mean, this is truly incarnational ministry. And, and the, the important piece is the relationship, right? You're sharing your testimony. You're sharing about Jesus. You're sharing God's word. You, what you're doing isn't really actually that important. You just do what they're doing. You want to go out and do traditional fishing or help them plant their crops or whatever, right? But it's living out uh, God's love through word and deed, right? So we do want you to live out loud. Um, so we had two teams coming. One was from Chicago. One was from Huntington Beach. And the villages that we wanted to go to called us and said, you can't come. And I'm thinking, okay, that's not a huge problem, but it's a significant problem, right? You had these people that came halfway around the world, and now you don't have anywhere to take them. So I got my team together, and I said, we do a thing called listening prayer. I mean, we pray, and we just try to listen to the Lord. Where do you want us to go? What do you want us to do? So we got together, and we're praying out in the bungalow out there by the water, a pretty spot, and we get done praying, and nobody hears anything. <laughs> you know? It's like, okay, now what would you? Right, well, let's go to bed. Maybe in the morning we'll have an idea. You know, I woke up in the morning, and I had surveyed two villages that were close to a village where we had about eight Discovery Bible studies going on. And we can't go back to the same village because it brings pressure on those that are studying God's Word, right? It can bring persecution on them. So it's always good to bring teams to, to new areas and find new persons of peace. And then it's our Indonesian's predominantly that do the follow-up and the discipleship so that we take pressure off of those that are studying. So I said, well, let's, let's go to these two villages. They didn't have phone signals, you know, unannounced, you know, and we didn't have any Bajo believers at that time. We'd had one lady that had made a decision to follow Jesus, but we lost contact with her. And so let's say, we said, well, let's go to these two Bajo villages. And so we went out, not even knowing. It was just pure Luke 10 trip, right? Didn't know if they'd even receive us or not. We went there, they took us in, and uh, we saw at that point our first solid five Bajo people that made decisions to follow Jesus. Yeah. And, and I mean, that's, this is what we're talking about, right? You come up against a problem and you say, Lord, what do I do? And then he leads you to the harvest, right? I mean, we didn't have a clue where we were supposed to go. And, and, and it wasn't like, you know, epic problem but for us we felt it and it was like man these have guests where are we going to take them you know and so you pray and God leads and you see your first fruits how does problems work out as opportunities honestly to just to bring this more home I think I really started learning this when my own kids became teenagers right if some of you aren't there you'll understand when you get there right you got teenagers well our our, our problems opportunities to teach, you know, to help. They are, right? But it depends a lot on our perspective and, and our faith and just leaning into that and being willing to go deep, right, and to see God glorified and to see God really work his might and his power through problems. Let me close in prayer. Father, we thank you for this time this morning. 
and uh, just the relevance of your word for our lives today and the things that we face from pandemic to issues of political issues and alienating one another and the many different difficulties that we face. And we want to become more like Jesus through these problems and we want to see you glorified. And so that's what we ask for in our lives, in this church, that you would be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.